Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word. I pray today that your word would not just tickle our ears or give us something to think about, but God, I pray that your word would sink down deeply inside of our hearts and cause us to move, cause us to be changed, and to take action in our lives, in our homes, and in the world that we live in. In Jesus' name, someone say amen. Amen. Jonah chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. That's where we've been the last couple of times that I've uh, preached. Uh, We went through Jonah chapter 1 together. And then the last time I spoke, we went through Jonah chapter 2. And uh, what we're doing is, is kind of a rescue mission for the story of Jonah, because I think we've become so familiar, so, uh, well, I guess familiar is the best word, so familiar with the book uh, and the story of Jonah, uh, that we have just kind of chalked it up to being about one thing. And every time we read or look at the, or experience the book of Jonah, we see it in that one light, that Jonah is about obedience, right? That's the way we've always been taught. Jonah, he uh, was a prophet of God, we know, and uh, God told him to go to Nineveh. Jonah was disobedient or obedient? You're going to have to, y'all, I'm a youth pastor, you're going to have to help me out. Was he disobedient or obedient? Yes, good job. He was disobedient. He didn't go to Nineveh. He went the opposite direction to Tarshish. Gets into Tarshish, hops on a boat, goes down into the boat, goes to sleep. A big storm comes. Uh, Long story short, uh, Jonah gets thrown overboard. He gets swallowed by a fish. Three days later, he's puked up. That's the Hebrew word that they use there, puked up onto dry land. And God gives him the command again to go to Nineveh. We know the story. He eventually is obedient. He goes to Nineveh. And uh, for most of us, that's where our knowledge of Jonah kind of ends, right? He goes to Nineveh, preaches, and goes to Nineveh, preaches, and then he gets a little bit mad at God, and that's the end of the story. Four chapters long, very short uh, story in the Word of God, but it's a fascinating story. And there's so much more to it than just this idea that we need to be obedient to God or you may get swallowed by a whale, right? That's not the the whole idea of this book. So what we're doing is a rescue mission. We're going into it. And I want to encourage you, every time you get in the Word of God, just say this little prayer. It's a simple prayer. Just say, Holy Spirit, will you speak to me as I read your Word today? Amen. And then just start praying or just start reading, I'm sorry. And just allow Him to speak to you in that moment. We need to... I think we need to become unfamiliar with the scriptures again. Is that okay to say that? We need to become unfamiliar with them again so that we can allow the Holy Spirit to not just speak something we've been told that it means, but to allow him to speak to our hearts as we read. So Jonah chapter 3 is where our story picks up. Jonah uh, has just been spit onto dry ground uh, by our fish. And uh, the title of today's message is this, if you're taking notes, Jonah and the Repentant City. Jonah and the Repentant City. So Jonah chapter 3, we're just going to read through this. It's only 10 verses long. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Someone say a second time. He said, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time... Jonah obeyed the Lord's command, and he went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. 
And on the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message. Wow. And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast, and they put on burlap to show their sorrow. And when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds or flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning. I would love to have seen that. Like they dressed all of their animals up in garments of mourning. And everyone must pray to God earnestly. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all of their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. And when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. That's a good story. That's a good story. I try to tell my students all the time, the Bible is good. It's not just good for, you, for your spiritual well-being, but it's an entertaining book. This is a really good book. But I think, again, with Jonah, we've chalked it up to just obedience. Jonah was obedient, and, and God saved his city. That's incredible. But today, the idea that I want us to come away with is that this city, this, this story right here isn't so much about Jonah as it is about the city of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, the Assyrian people, and their repentance. Look at someone say, repent. Look at someone else say, you really need to repent. <laughs> Come on, y'all got to lighten up. Y'all got to lighten up. We're, we're goofy back there in youth. Repent. Now, repentance, I don't know if you knew this, but it is the main message of Jesus. It was his main message. And here in the book of Jonah, we see and we get an idea of New Testament repentance. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll, you might see that word repent, depending on which translation you're reading from. You might see that word repent. If you're reading from the King James Version, then you saw right at the end of this, it says that the Lord repented of the evil he was about to do. And that's just uh, the... The translator decided to use this word repent for the Lord turned from his anger. That's the idea in the Hebrew that we see the Lord turned from his anger. And I think we've been taught that this word repentance just means to, to turn from your anger or turn from your, your sin, to turn from whatever you're, you're going towards and, and turn to God. That's what we've always been taught. But in a second, we'll see that that's not exactly the case. The, the Old Testament writers may use that word repent sometimes, but it just means it's the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn, to change your direction. And uh, so we see here in, throughout the Old Testament, you might see that word repentance, but the word repentance really doesn't come until the New Testament. Several translators put it in the Old Testament, but the definition that God gives us for the word repent doesn't come until the New Testament. But here in Jonah, it's fascinating. I don't know if you are as nerdy about the Bible as I am, but I love it. Because in Jonah, we get a glimpse of what New Testament repentance is. 
in the Old Testament. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And that's what this third chapter of Jonah is about, repentance. And uh, we see, if you remember back to the last time I preached in Jonah chapter 2, we see this beautiful Hebrew poem that Jonah articulates in his mind as he's in the belly of the fish, but it's a, his prayer to God. And it's a, a beautiful, if you weren't here or if you've forgotten about it, go back and read it later this week. But Jonah chapter 2 is a prayer from Jonah to God. And do you remember we talked about it last time? What is one thing in Jonah's prayer that was missing? Does anybody know? Anybody remember? You want me to let you know? Repentance. In his whole prayer to God, Jonah had just been swallowed by a fish because of his disobedience to God. And Jonah's praying, but nowhere in his prayer does he ever say, God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me for what I've done. I didn't do the right thing. I went the wrong way. I was wrong. Please forgive me. We don't see that anywhere in his prayer. He's thankful that God saved him, but he never repents. But we see that God sends him to this city, Nineveh. And Nineveh does repent. And repentance, go ahead and look at someone you're sitting beside. It's okay, too. Look at someone you're sitting beside and say, repentance is a good thing. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if you were to call up your best friend on the phone, say, hey, we need to meet up. You meet up together. And you're like, listen, the Lord told me that you need to repent of your sins. Can I tell you something? You may not have a best friend anymore after that. <laughs> because we've got this idea that repentance is a negative thing. Like, you know, we, we, we don't want to have to repent of our sins. You know, we don't want to have to turn. We want to be focused on God. I don't want to have to turn from my sins, but I do want to be focused on God. So, you know, how do I sort this out in my life? And, and if, you, if you were to walk into Walmart and stand right there at the front doors and everybody that passed say, hey, listen, you need to know this. The Lord's coming back soon. You need to repent. Turn from your sins, you evil heathen. Like, I would imagine that you probably would not be welcome to do your grocery shopping there anymore, right? We, people don't want to hear about repentance. They don't want to be told they need to repent. But today, if we could, for just a moment, I want to redeem this word. Can we do that this morning? Is that all right with you guys? All right, let's redeem it this morning because repentance is the main message of Jesus. In fact, uh, it was also the main message of Jesus' cousin John, the baptizer, who came before Jesus preaching. And he, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 2, says, In those days John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. And his message was this, Repent of your sins and turn to God. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is near. After this, John is arrested and killed. His head is chopped off from his shoulders, and Jesus begins his ministry. And again, the Gospel of Matthew, just one chapter over, tells us what Jesus' core message was. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From then on, Jesus began to preach. This is what he preached. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is near. This was Jesus' message. 
He preached a lot. He taught a lot. But it all came back to this idea. Repent of your sins. Turn to God. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is near. And in some places throughout the New Testament, he said the kingdom of heaven is right here. Right now. This was his main message. Have any of y'all ever heard of the gospel? Do y'all know what the word gospel means? Come on, yeah, good news. It means good news. Who is the good news? Jesus. Jesus' message was repentance. We've got a good message. It's Jesus. Jesus' message was repentance. So can we just for a second, you may need to take your fingers and, and clear out your brain a little bit and just say, I've got to think differently about repentance. I've got to stop thinking of repentance as some, you know, doom or gloom thing. And I think the reason that we have this idea is because we've been taught, you know, people have said, you know, repent, you know, turn or burn. But listen, that's not the message of repentance. Jesus is a good, he brings a good word. And repentance was his word. So maybe we've been taught wrong about repentance. And so I want to try to change your mind about repentance today, all right? That's my challenge today. I want to change your mind about repentance. Point number one is just that. Repentance is the main message. Here's point number two. Repentance is changing your mind. It's changing your mind. We've been taught, and I think it it's comes from the Old Testament where we get this idea of, of turn from your sins and turn to God. And we've, we've labeled repentance as being that idea. Like, my sins are over here. I'm going to my sins. No, I can't do that anymore. I got to repent. I got to turn and go to God. But that's not what the word repentance means. It doesn't mean to turn from your sins and turn to God. In fact, the word repentance comes from a Greek word, metanoia. Look at your neighbor and say, metanoia. Yeah. Meta comes from the word change. Or I should say our word change comes from this word meta, change. Anybody want to guess what noia means? Your mind. In the Gospels, whenever it says that Jesus' message was repent of your sins, it is metanoia of your sins. Change your mind about your sins. Turn to God. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is near. So what is Jesus doing? He's, He's redeeming mankind, right? He came to redeem, to seek and save the lost. And so his message is repentance. Change your mind about your sin. Turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. The reason why this was his message was because in the Old Testament, how do you become righteous? With these. You become righteous with your hands. You become righteous with your feet. You become righteous with your works, with your actions. Thank you, Brother Arnie. There was no way to be made righteous in the Old Testament apart from actions. I've got to do better. I've got to be better. I've got to talk better. I've got to walk better. I've got to think better. I've got to do all of these things better. I've got to do better. How many of y'all know that that's still the idea that most people hold about their relationship with God today. I got to do better. 
There's so many people that won't even go to church because they think, I can't go to church until I get my life together, until I do better. And so Jesus comes, and his message is repentance. What is he saying? He's saying this, listen, you have to change your mind about your sin. Listen, it's not what you do anymore that will that will give you relationship with God, that will grant you eternal life with the Father. It's not what you do anymore, but it's about your mind, and it's about your heart. I don't know if y'all are ready for this. Are you ready for this? This is good. I think this is a whole lot better than, than, we're, than we're understanding right now. I want to try to change your mind about it, because he's saying this. You've got to change your mind about your sin. It's not your actions that will earn you a relationship, a right relationship, righteousness with God. You've got to change your mind about that. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. What Jesus is saying is this. It's a new era. Your works will not earn you a place with the Father. You've got to change your mind about that. Someone say, that's good. That's good. Repentance is changing your mind. So the Lord, he tells Jonah, he says, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. And we've got this entire story of Jonah. It's four chapters long, and it's a prophetic book. There's different genres in the Bible, different genres of literature in the Bible. You've got historical uh, books. You've got poetic books. Uh, you've got uh, prophetic books. Uh, you've got the books of the law. You, there are all these different genres of literature that we see in the Bible. Well, this is considered the prophetic. It's a prophetic book. But it's amazing to me that the only words that we hear from God to the people is what Jonah goes and preaches. It says uh, in verse 4, On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds. This is God's word to the people. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. That was the message. Now, before we jump into how incredible this moment of repentance was, I, I got to give you just a little bit of detail about Nineveh. It's a capital city of the largest empire in the world, Assyria. The Assyrians are known for their global dominance at this time, and the way they brought about global dominance was through severe violence. They would raid a, a city or a country or a, a town or a village or whatever. They would raid it. They would burn the children alive. They would rape the women. And they would take the men, those that were able enough, strong enough, capable enough, they would take them as slaves. And what they would do is they, they would have this long rope with big hooks every so often on the rope, and they would take those hooks and put it through the jaws of the men and lead them away into captivity. They were violent. They were known for scalping people, for, for doing all kinds of just grotesque, inhumane things. They were known for their violence. In fact, this is what God says about them. Just uh, one book over in the book of Nahum. This is what he says in Nahum chapter 3, verse 1. This is what God says about the city of Nineveh. He says, What sorrow awaits Nineveh? 
the city of murder and lies. That's a good reputation, isn't it? She is crammed with wealth and is never without victims. Hear the crack of whips, the rumble of wheels, horses' hooves pound and chariots clatter wildly. See the flashing swords and glittering spears as the chariots charge past. Look what God says about them. There are countless casualties, heaps of bodies, so many bodies that people stumble over them. Wow. That's the reputation that they had with God. Imagine what the people were saying. This was an unusually wicked, cruel, violent people. God's charge of them was that they were murderous and never without victims. So what does he do? He sends Jonah to go preach to them. Jonah is finally obedient. Jonah gets into the city, fresh out of the fish's mouth, and he just barely walks into the gates of the city, the Bible tells us, and he starts preaching this sermon. The sermon is five Hebrew words long. Oed erbad yom Nineveh havach, meaning 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. I can just imagine Jonah, you know, coming into town. He doesn't want to be there. And you, we, we know this because he didn't repent in his prayer. <laughs> he hadn't changed his mind about what God told him to do. And then in chapter 4, we see that he is more bitter than ever after preaching. So we know that his, his message, whenever he gets there, it probably wasn't real passionate. He, he probably wasn't, you know, that, that pastor that's just, you know, trying to convince and persuade people. He, he walks into town, and I, I can imagine this is what it looked like. Uh, hey, y'all, listen. In 40 days, you're dead. I guess just let me know what you think. (laughs) Like, this is his message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. It'll be overthrown. But look at the response of this entire city. The Bible tells us that, that, that people are, are so ready to, I mean, I can imagine, they're like stumbling over each other. Oh, I got to repent, I got to repent, you know. Like, come on, we, we got to repent, we got to fast, we got to pray. Word gets to the king. Jonah doesn't even preach to the king. It says when the king heard about it all, whenever he heard about the people going into repentance, it says the king got up off his throne, he takes off his royal robes, and what does he do? He puts on sackcloth, burlap. It's, a, it's like a bag made for grain and it's made out of goat's hair. Imagine wearing goat's hair, right? Probably not going to be your most comfortable of, of the attire that you have, right? And he sits in a heap of ashes and then he gives this decree. He says, listen, nobody in this country is eating or drinking a thing. Nobody is going to wear their normal clothes, but everybody needs to put on garments of mourning. Someone say mourning. Everyone needs to put on garments of mourning and pray earnestly to God because who knows? Maybe, maybe he won't destroy us. Wow. You know, this really gives me hope as a preacher 
Because Jonah just gives this half-hearted message. Just, hey, y'all, in 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. And the entire country goes into revival, right? So I'm like, thank you, Jesus. You know, I've, hopefully I'm a little bit better uh, preacher than Jonah was, because hopefully we'll see more than Jonah did. But I love this idea that we see from this book. It says they, the king wanted them to turn from your violence. Stop your killing is what the New Living Translation says. And we get this idea that that's repentance, right? Like, we got to stop our violence. We got to turn from our evil ways and and turn to God. But can I tell you, that's not repentance. That might come from repentance, but we see repentance whenever the king says, hey, everybody, put on sackcloth. Put on garments of mourning. We've got an entire country that is known for their violence. They're known for their goring and maiming, and it's gross. That's what they're known for, though. But the king says, listen, we can't just stop our violence, but we've got to change our minds about our violence. No longer are we going to be the perpetrator. No longer are we going to be the aggressor. Instead, let's put on clothes for mourning and let's take on the position of someone whose loved one has just been brutally killed and let's get on our knees in ashes and, and say, God, I'm sorry. God, I changed my mind. I don't want that anymore. That's not what I desire anymore. I want you. I want your presence in my life. I don't want to be the aggressor. I want to be the one that will sit in a place of mourning and sorrow. Wow. Someone say, change your mind. We see this New Testament idea of repentance right here in the book of Jonah. They didn't just stop what they were doing, but they changed their minds about what they were doing. You have to change your mind. In 1861, George Washington Carver was born into slavery, the son of an enslaved woman named Mary. They were owned by a man named Moses Carver and his family. And shortly after George was born, his mother and himself were kidnapped. They were taken away and resold into slavery in Arkansas. Well, Moses, he, he didn't really necessarily agree with the idea of slavery, but he was an elderly man with a 240-acre farm, and he needed help. And so what he did was he bought this, this young woman and her child, and he loved them. He loved his family. They loved them dearly. And whenever they were taken, George hired a neighbor, said, go find them and bring them back. I mean, they'd, they'd taken a, a, a liking to one another. So the neighbor, he travels, finally, eventually finds them in Arkansas, or finds George in Arkansas, and never finds the mother. But he finds George and trades Moses' finest horse to buy George back and, and bring him back home into Missouri. And George is still an infant at this time, and so he brings George back. George is... is not in a good state of health, and so the Carver family, they, they nurture him and care for him back to good health, and they begin to educate him. And, and just a year after George was born, slavery was abolished. 
But the Carvers, they kind of adopted George as their own. They taught him and educated him. They loved him. He loved them. At 12, around the ages of 10 to 12 years old, George decided he wanted to go get a, a, a bigger education. Finally, things had opened up to where uh, the black man was free to, to go and pursue some things in some places. And, and so he wanted to go get an education, and, and he just taught himself with books and with, with people. He took in a lot of odd jobs with his little skill sets that he had learned from the carvers. And, and uh, eventually, he became known around where he was living as a young boy, 10 to 12 years old, as the plant doctor. The plant doctor. He was uh, determined to educate himself about all things plant-related. And so what he would do is he would find a plant that looked sickly or, or needed some maturing, and, and he would doctor it, and, and he would study it, and eventually the plant would grow to great health. And people started noticing this, and so they would say, George, can you come to my farm? I'm having troubles with my crop, or I'm having troubles with this tree, or I'm having troubles with this bush or this plant. And he would come, and just by looking at the plant and assessing the plant, he could give them good information on how to nurse the plant back to health. So he became widely known there as the plant doctor. Uh, his reputation started spreading around, and, and finally uh, there was a group of people that hired him to be the director of the agricultural teaching department at a Huskegee Institute. And so he goes to Huskegee Institute, and he starts teaching uh, about agriculture. And, uh, but he hated it. He hated teaching. He, he wanted to do the research. He wanted to do the hands-on stuff. Hated teaching, though. His students loved him. And uh, so finally, eventually, uh, he was promoted. It might have seemed like a demotion to some, but he was promoted to the research director of agriculture at the Institute. He no longer had to teach. Instead, he could spend more of his time developing ways to, uh, to improve on agriculture there in the South. And that became his, his greatest hobby and his, his greatest love was agriculture. And uh, so he, his reputation kept going out and kept going out. And people started to, to notice him. Now, as a black man in America at this time, that wasn't an easy thing uh, to do. But people loved him. They were drawn to him. And eventually, uh, he came across this discovery. He's in the South, and the South is known for its cotton. And the cotton crops all along the south were failing. They were, I mean, they a sharp decrease in, in growth and in sales. And, and the south is just being crippled because that's what the south did, was they raised cotton. And now their crops weren't growing and they didn't know why. And, and so George Washington Carver discovers that it's because they had just been planting a single crop. Over and over and over and over again. And that crop is pulling out nutrients from the ground, but it's not releasing the right nutrients to, to maintain continual healthy harvest year after year. And so he finds out that there's this product, the peanut. And he discovers that if you grow peanuts in your cotton fields, say put your peanuts in there for a year, grow peanuts instead of cotton, the following year, there would be nutrients back in the ground that would cause explosive growth for cotton. And he discovers this, and he goes around and starts trying to convince farm owners, hey, don't plant cotton this year, plant peanuts. 
And they're all saying, George, you're crazy. What are we going to do with peanuts? At this time in 1896, whenever George discovers this, peanuts have not even been identified by the world as a crop. No one's planting them. No one's harvesting them. No one's using them. But George knows that, hey, if you'll plant it, it'll improve your soil conditions. So he tries to convince farmers, plant peanuts instead of cotton this year. Most of the people just kind of blow him off. They don't believe his, his study. They don't believe his education. But a few farmers, they, they give in. They say, okay, we'll, we'll plant some peanuts. So they plant peanuts, and the peanuts grow wild. I mean, just an abundance of peanuts. Next year, they plant cotton, and the cotton grows in abundance. They say, wow, this, this guy, he's figured out something. And so... George is trying to convince people to plant peanuts instead of cotton. They say, we don't want to plant peanuts. We're not going to make anything if we plant peanuts. It's, and to George, at this time, it was just an idea to replenish the nutrients in the soil. But George starts to think, wait a second. Maybe there's something in the peanut that could be valuable. To us today, we're like, uh, duh, peanut butter, hello, <laughs> one of the greatest food groups on the, in the pyramid, right? Like peanut butter is it's fantastic. I love peanut butter. I, here's a little secret. In my office, I've got the little peanut butter to-go packs. If you start to feel tired, you can just down one of those to-go packs of peanut butter. It's like instant energy. It's incredible. Whenever I go hiking or backpacking, I take peanut butter with me. If you, if you hike, you know, 10 miles a day, you start to get tired, you start to feel your body fatiguing, you, take, you just eat a little bit of peanut butter, and it's, it's, it's a miracle. I don't know. It's incredible. But George, he has this idea, well, if we can't get farmers to plant peanuts because they're just trying to grow their cotton, then maybe we could find something useful from a peanut. And uh, he spends time looking at peanuts, studying peanuts, and he finds 300 different products that you can make from a peanut. He found out how to make milk, flour, ink and dyes, plastics, wood stains, soap, medicinal oils, cosmetics, glue, insecticides, gasoline, metal polish, axle grease, rubber, paint, shaving cream, washing powder, linoleum, wood filler, and much, much, much more. All from a peanut. And when he discovers all of these things, people start to say, oh, hang on, wait a second. If we didn't plant cotton, if we used our fields to plant peanuts, we could make some money. Like, this is incredible. So farmers start saying, we're not even going to worry about cotton anymore. Let's just plant peanuts. They start planting peanuts. Farmers discover how much value and how much uses peanuts can, can fulfill. And, and so they go to George and they say, hey, George, listen, peanuts are very valuable things. I don't know if you knew this, George, but peanuts are, are valuable. You need to go to the Ways and Means Committee of the United States House of Representatives and convince them to put a tariff on peanuts because these things, can, they can make money. They can be good. So George goes to the Ways, he, he goes to testify 
uh, with the Ways and Means Committee of the United States House of Representatives, and he starts his, his oration, and at first it's, it's fallen flat. It's, it's, it's a miserable fail, and, and the, the reps are they're kind of like, oh my goodness, when is this going to be over? And then George starts telling them of all of the benefits of peanuts and all of the uses and the over 300 different products that you can get from a peanut. And by the time he finishes his speech, the U.S. House of Representatives are standing in ovation and they agree to place a tariff on the product of peanuts. And all it took was one person changing his mind about a product. It was just to replenish the nutrients in the soil, but whenever he realized, I can't convince people to plant peanuts, he said, I've got to change their minds about what a peanut can do. Less than 40 years later, peanuts are the second largest cash crop in the southern United States. Right behind cotton. The farmers, they would plant peanuts, harvest, sell. Next year, they would plant cotton, harvest, sell, peanuts, and all of their crops yielded abundance more than they ever thought possible. All because someone changed their mind about what a peanut could do. Church, if we could grasp this idea in our spiritual lives, it if we are in love with our sin, and to us our sin is, is like, I, I mean, I know I shouldn't want it, but it makes me feel good, or, or it helps me to stay alert, or, you know, I, whatever your, your sin habit may be, you know, we, we tend to want to hold on to our sins, but if we could change our mind about our sin, just think of the yield and the growth that could come in our lives. And that's what Jesus's message is. Repent, change your mind about your sins, change your thinking, and turn your life to God. Why? Because there's a new era here. It's not just about works anymore, but you've got to change your mind. You've got to change your mind. Here's our last point today. Point number three. Repentance is needed daily. Repentance is needed daily. Do you ever stop to think, maybe you wonder, what does God think about our culture today? Any of you ever thought that before? Like, what does God think about all of the evil that's happening around us? What does he think about the school shootings? What does he think about our, our modern-day politics? What does he think about uh, drug use? What does he think about sexual abuse? Like, what, what does he think about people? We know what he thinks about that, but what does he think about us? What does he think about our culture that has given into this and has have adopted these things, as some of them even as being of value? Like, what does God think about us? Like, if I was God... I would get rid of all the evil in the world. I mean, has anybody ever thought that before? Like, if I was God, I would just get rid of all the evil. There's a big question all over the world. Believers and unbelievers alike usually struggle with this question at one point in their lives. The question is, if God is real, then why does he allow so much evil? 
If God is real, why does he allow evil? Well, I think Peter answers that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient. Someone say patient. Why is he being patient? For your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to change their thinking. To change their thinking. See, God isn't interested in evil being rampant on earth, but do you know what he is interested in? You. And most of us, I would probably say all of us to one degree or another or in one area or another in our lives, we struggle with sin that we haven't yet changed our minds about. And I don't know what that may be for you, but I do know this, that if we would learn to change our minds about our sin, that's a good thing. And God can bring incredible growth in our lives from that. The sad thing about Nineveh and this story in Jonah, they, they did repent. They put on their garments of mourning. They changed their minds about their sin. But less than 150 years later, they would change their minds about changing their minds. They would repent of their repentance. And 150 years later, God would ultimately destroy the city of Nineveh. And the entire Assyrian dominance in the world would come crashing down. Because repentance isn't just something that you do once. The, the message of God isn't, you know, re repent and you'll be saved and everything's great. The message is you have to change your mind about the way you think of your sins. You've got to change your mind. And how many of y'all know that's a daily thing? I've got to change my mind every single day about my sins. There's something in my life that I've got to change my mind about. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Remember, repentance isn't just changing your actions. It's changing your mind. Here's the thing. A lot of us, we think that we can change our lives. Can I be honest with you today? I, I want everybody to hear this because I think this is important. You cannot change your life. You can't. You're incapable of it. You can't even change your own heart. You don't have the ability, but God does. And his message to us is this. If you'll just change your mind, then I'll change your heart. If you can just decide that 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 sin isn't going to be beneficial for you, then I'll take it. I'll change your motives. I'll change your ways. You just got to change your mind. Romans 12 verse 2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. How? By changing the way you think. By repentance. God will transform you if you will change the way you think. Then you will learn to know. Learn to know. Not you will immediately know everything, right? If you just repent, all of a sudden, whoo, I know everything about God now. No, but, but if you change your mind about your sin, you will, be, you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and 
perfect. But you've got to change your mind about your sin. I love it. He says, let God transform you. And the way you do that is by changing the way you think. Did you know that Jesus talks about Jonah? Matthew chapter 12, the worship team would come on up. Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus is talking with a group of Pharisees and teachers of religious law, and they come to Jesus and they say, we we demand a sign. Show us a miracle and prove your authority. And Jesus, he already knows that their mind is made up about who he is, so he doesn't show them a sign. So your minds are already made up. Instead, he gives them a warning. He says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. The people of Nineveh, will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. At Jonah's message. Now someone greater than Jonah is here. But you refuse to change your minds. Wow. Can I encourage you today to let your guard down about who you thought Jesus is? To let your guard down about the sin that you've, you've held on to? And instead, change the way you think. Change your mind about these things and say, you know what, God, I want to just let you transform me. I want to let you do the work. Every one of us, there's an area that we have closed our minds off to God. Maybe your mind is close to God in the area of your relationships. Maybe you would rather live in a secret relationship outside of marriage than to change your mind about your spouse. Maybe your mind is close to God in the area of your finances and you've always thought, man, the church is just out to get my money. But what if we changed our minds and said, you know what, God? I'll change my mind about my finances and I'll let you transform my situation. Ooh. Maybe your mind is close to God in the area of politics and you'd rather follow a person or maybe just a set of ideas than to change your mind about your politics and gain God's perspective about the issues. You know, what does God think about abortion? What does God think about homosexuality or foreign relations or justice or racism or guns and weapons or elections or personal freedoms? Like, why do we have to follow just a a set of guidelines from a particular group of people? Why don't we get God's perspective? Why don't we change our minds about what we've been told about certain issues and say, God, show me what you think about the issues? Come on, in every one of us, there's an area that we've closed our minds off to God. If you would stand with us. This is the last verse I want to share with you in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Paul's talking to the church in Ephesus, and he says, With the Lord's authority I say this, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. 
They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. You've changed your way of thinking and you've learned about Christ since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, not the, what's being sold to you by the world. But since you've learned about the truth that comes from him, throw off your sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Verse 23, instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature. Your new nature is, to be create, or is created to be like God truly righteous and holy. Here's the thing, church. If you want to be truly righteous and holy, you can't just change your actions. Because just like the king of Nineveh, you can step down off of your throne and you can change your actions, but the next day you can get right back up on your throne and declare yourself the king or queen. But instead, we've got to change our minds. And it's got to be something that we do daily. Father, we love you so much. And God, I pray today that we would make a commitment to change our minds, to repent of our sins. Lord, I thank you that that you have redeemed this word for us today that we don't have to be ashamed or we don't have to think negatively about repentance, God, but that we know that if we can just change our minds, that you can change our hearts, that you can change our attitudes, that you can renew our thoughts and attitudes by your Holy Spirit. And so God, I pray today that every single person in this place, every person listening, God, that our hearts would be transformed by your spirit as we change our minds. And Lord, I pray that you would, this morning in this place, that you would reveal to each and every single one of us that area of our life that we have closed our minds to you. Lord, that we would begin to think in a different way. That we would begin to see you in a different way. That we wouldn't be controlled by our fleshly pleasures, God, but that we would be led by your Holy Spirit. Reveal to each one of us that area of our lives that's closed off to you. And let our hearts be repentant. Let our minds change the way that we think so that we can receive your love, receive your forgiveness, receive your grace and mercy, and that we can see the crops of our lives begin to flourish in abundance in the name of Jesus. Let's worship together.